Hello, Mage fans, and welcome to Mage the Podcast, the podcast that works hard towards ascension so you don't have to. I'm your host, Adam Simpson. I am joined today by Terry Robinson. We're going to be giving you another episode of Tomes of Magic. And before we kick it off, Terry, how are you doing? I am doing fine. I'm going to go with that. I am currently working on three different mage projects because I have no sense of appropriate amount of work to throw into my hobbies. And by the time the audience hears this, hopefully one of them will be out in the world. So you did your lovely little audio shorts explaining the lore of mage, and I decided to do a a complimentary series attempting to explain the systems of mage. And that has completely exploded from, oh, I'll just write up an outline and then I'll talk to my microphone and people will get a, a basic walkthrough of the system to me going on page 238, it uses the word simple to refer to procedure types. And on page two, 241, it uses the term standard, which is it? Uh, the, the truth is out there. Um, and <laughs> so coming up with that has resulted in me also producing an SRD to kind of explain how conflict resolution and everything works in, in World of Darkness. So hopefully both of those will exist in the world audio recordings of the basic explainers that you and I have talked about for a bit, our Mage Summer School, which assuming I finish anything before September like 23rd technically still counts as summer. Uh, So instead of just doing it, you're like actually putting some effort into it and trying to kind of do it right, sounds like. I mean, when I was recording my lore episodes, I was just like, uh, let's see. Oh, yeah, there's this group, uh, Order of Hermes, I think. Anyways, uh, so it sounds like you're going to give us some good uh, results here. Oh, yeah. When you were doing yours, you could hear you put down your cigar and whiskey before you were recording. So just to indicate how casual it was, like, hold on, let me put on my uh, my smoking jacket and get back to this. So uh, we'll, we'll see <laughs> We'll see if any of that effort actually makes it into the final recording. But those are the, the two big ones. In addition to that, writing project-wise, I'm working on something that I'm tentatively calling the Book of Avatars, which is just going to be a, a, a guide to how to use avatars. I'm doing that with, with Charles Siegel, and that has resulted in some uh, interesting ideas. Preview avatar character sheets, just putting that out into the world. Paradigms Explored Weird and Weft has gone copper. That was a project I did with Josh Heath. Uh, and finally, when we are recording, but well earlier than when this is going out, uh, Drive Through RPG had a Christmas in July sale uh, where they were doing 25% off a bunch of stuff. We have an affiliate code. When you buy something through DriveThruRPG and use our affiliate code, we get a, a few percent of that and that helps us keep the lights on. And uh, if you get at least $100 in digital stuff using our code, send us a note. Uh, we will give you a, a shout out on the air. If you want to include a line of text that you would like us to read in possibly dramatic voices, we will be glad to do that, assuming that it uh, it, it is it is appropriate for Mage the Podcast. And Richard Bat Brewster contacted me and he said, hey, I got a bunch of stuff. You should see that coming through. We did. Thank you, Richard Bat Brewster, for both supporting us as an executive producer as well as using our affiliate code through DriveThruRPG. So if you don't want to become an executive producer, that's another way you can support the show. And that's all I Yeah, have. and we, we really do appreciate people who uh, take the extra moment. Uh, and that's all it takes to uh, grab the affiliate code and put it in when you're making your purchase. And uh, it, it doesn't change the price that you're paying to get your things on DriveThruRPG, but it, it helps us out a lot uh, to keep paying our expenses for a website and uh, some ongoing projects uh, that we're working on to help the mage fandom. So we really do appreciate those people who take the extra step. Today, we are going to be talking about another episode of Tomes of Magic. We're going to be talking about Guide to the Technocracy, 
a book that uh, this particular tome does not have anything to do with magic, so we're sort of making an exception for this book in our Tomes of Magic series, because uh, it makes it very clear in this book that technocrats do not use magic. So we're like, oh, okay, well, an exception this time. But uh, this book is actually quite important for, as it turns out, the first three editions of Mage. This is the only book that focuses on the technocracy as a whole. It's in second edition, but it's towards the tail end of second edition, and it has a lot of influences in the book from the upcoming revised edition. Because there is a lot of repeated material, uh, we're not going to go through every bit of detail that is in this book. It's 235 pages, so that would be a lot of detail to go through when it comes to material that uh, has is shown up in, in previous books of Mage. Uh, we're just going to basically gloss over it and let you know that we have discussed in Tomes of Magic, all of the uh, mage books that came before this one. And so if there's anything you'd like more detail on, we have five episodes on for the five conventions of the technocracy in the first two editions of Mage. And if you, if you want any extra detail, we've got it for you. With that in mind, this was actually a, a more difficult episode to prepare for. Um, I, I found out that our producer had to uh, get a permit from the FCC for some reason. We've never had to do that before. <laughs> I had to, to go online, fill out a whole bunch of paperwork. It's been a lot more work than usual. I actually, you know, yesterday I, I had this, I found out I have stitches on the back of my head, the base of my neck. It seems like if I got a cut there, I would have remembered that, but it's probably nothing. Anyways... Uh, let's move into it. Uh, I would like to hear a walkthrough on the technology. Terry, can you help me out? I will give you the walkinest of walkthrough. This book is broken down into eight chapters plus a prologue as well as an introduction and an appendix. So we are going to do our, our march through everything. And the opening is the prologue, the machine inside, which details the operation of an amalgam that is trying to track down a bunch of kids that have done something. There are katanas involved. There is gunfire. There are reality deviants. There are procedures and effects that are implemented. There is computer hacking. There is people taking advantage of the fact that they're wearing a suit, thus they can get into kind of anywhere. And then at the end, there is that sudden twist to remind you that at the end of the day, the technocrats aren't necessarily always your friend. And this is an interesting departure from a lot of the previous writing. One, because it's nine pages, which is longer than what we normally get. Two, this had nothing to do with Amanda Jensen. Also, at least for me, the first few pages showcase what is kind of the artistic style for the rest of the book. Revised is often marked in my head by the art of Jeff and Roy Lobenstein, as well as Langdon Foss, plus Christopher Shy, kind of as the keynote artist. And this introduction includes all of those. And they are known for having a bit more comic booky style. Uh, we have generally two or three line weights that are being used with comparatively little shading. Things are more black and white than in gray, at least visually. And this is part of the reason that whenever I have opened this book up previously, in my head, it was a revised book. It wasn't a second edition book. What did you think of the uh, the little bit of opening fiction? To echo what you just said, uh, I, I also think in, in my head, this is a revised book. I mean, the page borders are second edition. It was put out during second edition. The, the rules um, details do conform to second edition rule set. But Really, just just reading through the book, the look and feel, the the text, the the constant references to revised era uh, things, 
I walk away from this thinking, yeah, it really feels like a, a revised edition book. And uh, as for the the prologue fiction, I thought it was uh, very nice to give us an example in the story of an amalgam that is a cabal of uh, technocrat agents going through a, a story together. And and also, uh, yeah, I, I definitely noticed how at the time this book came out, there was mention of uh, you should rethink the technocracy. We're going to uh, let you see a different technocracy than you had in mind. And then you read through this fiction and it makes it clear at the end, yeah, the technocrats are bad guys, you know, just just setting things up for you here. And so to start the book off with that note, I, I thought was rather interesting, giving the hype that they had before the book came out. Yeah, my impression is usually something of the fact that I'm not going to say that this book says that they are the bad guys, but they give you a lot of evidence to show that they, they aren't necessarily the good guys. Yes. Uh, <laughs> so the introduction lays out what the book is intending to do. It tries to establish what the stakes are in the world of darkness at the time that this book is coming out and why the technocracy is so important. You get to see things from inside the technocracy and they start out saying that for various reasons, the technocracy is a bit more flexible than it is given credit for. I think this is partially a narrative contrivance to indicate that, hey, uh, the world of darkness is seemingly bursting at its seams and the technocracy, as you know, it isn't quite poised to deal with that. In addition, if you had to play technocrats as they had been laid out previously in Mage, that would be remarkably brutal or alternatively remarkably boring. Uh, the mood that established, they refer to as the cracking monolith, that people see this uh, towering slab of implacable menace throwing its shadow across the world. But that is not the case, that when you zoom in, there are fissures, there are cracks, it is weathering, it is five conventions and a few methodologies that are, are trying to keep it together and not always quite succeeding. And the theme, though, is act now. And to to lean into that, what they do is list kind of what the existing threats are in the world of darkness to the technocracy. And this is one of the things I love about this book. It just goes down the threats facing the technocracy. And I'm going to do a quick read through just to kind of tell the audience where the state of mage and the technocracy is. One, reality deviants have made beachheads into the technocracy as part of the special projects division and other internal organizations that as of this writing, NWO operatives and syndicate members are more likely to cut deals with vampires than maybe they would have previously. People are getting a sense of how much power and resource the technocracy has at its uh, command and people are trying to get in on that. Modern technology has made people more complacent. Uh, there's an upcoming catastrophe called the apocalypse forecast that indicates that with like 73 point various decimal points level of likelihood, uh, humanity will not exist in 10 years. The level of interconvention rivalry is at an all-time high. The great schism between the front lines and the higher-ups has never been stronger. The traditions have rallied uh, mortals have embraced technology, which has also fueled a backlash by other mortals saying that we shouldn't be putting so much trust in it. Also, the technology is become so complicated that accidents that seem unrelated are becoming more and more common, that an issue with the power grid causes a manufacturing plant to accidentally release uh, tainted food or products into the world. They mentioned the eerie messiah effect, which is a small but growing number of hunters have manifested paranormal talents and declared war on the supernatural. 
and finally what they refer to as the Pandora effect, which is the opportunity that mortals without the technocracy whatsoever is capable of just kind of blowing everything up. So not until all those things were put next to each other did I really get the sense of like, oh no, Mage at the turn of the 21st century is really poised on the edge of apocalypse in a way that I hadn't previously considered. And your amalgam, your cabal, uh, can theoretically change that. Now, can you? That's that's up to you and your storyteller. I was uh, thinking uh, during this how um, much uh, this is a, really a year of the reckoning book. It has that little logo on the front and back uh, cover of the book. Uh, year of the reckoning was 1999 for us, and that was a time when the leadership of the uh, White Wolf Game Company was noticing some changes in the market. Uh, in the sort of early mid-90s, White Wolf was riding high in RPGs. They were selling well. The company was growing. Uh, some people were calling them the number two biggest uh, role-playing game company, and they were feeling very good about things. When it rolled around to 1999, uh, sales were not as good as they used to be. The leadership was letting some employees go, and whether or not they were forced to do that is something I'm not really qualified to comment on, but they were letting employees go. In a few episodes back, we mentioned how uh, Satiros Brocato himself put a note in the beginning of, I believe it was Orphan Survival Guide, letting people know that he would soon be uh, moving on to other opportunities. Uh, his name is uh, still in the credits uh, as a writer and as a co-developer for this book, so we, we still get uh, the benefit of his work here. But Year of the Reckoning saw a real shakeup for the uh, old world of darkness. Uh, Year of the Reckoning also saw, and so there was there was uh, several shakeups uh, going on, and they were also starting to hint at their apocalypse or end of everything, which I believe they brought about in, in roughly 2004. So they, they started the countdown to that. So a lot of things were changing in 1999. And this is the book that uh, states that it was, it was part of that big change. Uh, so chapter one is entitled Indoctrination. And this chapter tries to give you, uh, for lack of a better term, a lay of the land of what the technocracy considers to be the straight dope on reality, what the factions are within the technocracy as a whole, and a lot of definitions. And I think almost the entirety of the technocracy, or at least their positive view of themselves, can be summed up in this little two-paragraph section on page 24, where they say, Call them whatever you like, will workers, magi, mystic shamans, reality deviants. In a word, they're mages. They do not share the reality of the masses. Instead, they place themselves above and beyond it, pursuing their own dangerous dreams. Through their power, any madness can be made manifest. Think for a moment of the horrifying reality of that statement. Through the mind of a mage, all things are possible. Any dream, any nightmare, any lust or desire can be realized. Any base urge can be fulfilled through sheer force of will. The darkness in a wizard's soul calls out for meaning to define the mysteries of his existence. Offer him a mythos of primitive gods and he'll summon them into reality. Tell him lies of death and resurrection and he'll tear the veil between life and death asunder. Speak to him of spirits and the unseen and he'll release them into the world. Such is the madness of primitive magi. And I thought that was an amazing, if somewhat skewed, idea of, yes, we can bend reality with our will. And that is absolutely terrifying. 
And to me, that is something that in a chronicle, I will just copy and paste that from the book into the words of the antagonist that is explaining to the characters why he's going to blow up their Shantry. I I thought that was a a pretty good summary of it. Uh, We also get the idea that each convention kind of contains within it the seeds of some sort of madness, that all the groups have an agenda that can be taken destructively far. And the book, in multiple cases, and this is kind of important, specifically states that there are at least two technocracies. In the words of the book, one that shoots your cabal mates and one that safeguards reality and cures diseases. The first 30 pages or so are kind of trying to get you to do the lift of saying, this is not like the the traditions, here is why. And one of the important tools it uses to get that across is completely different terminology, of which hands down my favorite was sheep shanking, which is falling in love or lust with a clone, also known as banging a ba for obvious reasons. Uh, thank you, made second edition writers for, for concocting that. I thought the idea of a unified technocracy was downplayed a little too strongly for me, but I do understand why that was done, so I'm not going to say that's a complaint of mine. I like to see the technocracy as as more of a, not homogenous unit, but more of a unified force, but there is a lot more uh, dramatic potential to exploit the differences between conventions and the differences between different factions and ideologies. And so I thought the internal struggles uh, between conventions were emphasized a a little too strongly for them to have hung together and worked together so efficiently for so many years. But but again, that, that drama potential. I thought it was interesting that the Harbingers of Avalon, which is like a secret society inside the technocracy, first mentioned in Isle of the Mighty, they're depicted again here, but there's a different slant on them than Isle of the Mighty had. Isle of the Mighty made it clear that these were these were not good people. They were out for themselves. They were stuck in the past. They were going to do bad things when they were allowed to. Uh, this book um, depicts them as basically the same group of people with roughly the same background, but they're not so negative here. It, it even says at one point uh, they've been fighting the good fight for you know so many years, and so here they're depicted more more neutral. It's like you could take this in a positive or a negative direction, uh, depending on what you would like to do with them. Um, it was nice for me to see the timetable again. Uh, in the early, early days of Mage, there was a lot of mention of how the technocracy had a timetable. That was like a a future planned schedule for all technology and all uh, aspects of society, and they were going to make the whole world go in that direction. And as we got more into first edition and second edition, there was much less mention of that. But uh, uh, here again, they, they do mention the timetable, so that I thought that was fun. And my biggest takeaway for Chapter 1 is uh, I've been a big fan of the John Courage character ever since this book. The secret agent John Courage was mentioned in the early days of Mage in the first digital web supplement, and he was basically a a crazy wild man. He changed sides constantly. He was always uh, selling and buying information. Nobody knew what he was up to. He was a big risk taker. He was just a really dangerous guy, but you might want to talk to him because you can get a good scoop on this or that. And so we, we see mention of him through other mage books. So obviously he's a he's an important player in this mage world. Uh, he's mentioned in the New World Order convention book, um, mentioned in a number of other places, in the uh, prologue uh, fiction for Conven- Technocracy Syndicate. 
he's seen handing off some dirt on the, the bad parts of the uh, syndicate to an Arcanum member. And so you get the impression that, oh, maybe maybe he's not just taking risks for, for selfish reasons. Maybe he's trying to do something good, but we really don't know what. It is in Chapter 1 of Guide to the Technocracy that it is made clear that he is not just a wild man out for a thrill and personal gain. He is a reformer. He is an idealist. He sees the original... Uh, goals of the technocracy is a good thing. He thinks the technocracy has gotten off track, and he's trying to clean out the gutter and, and put the technocracy back where it should be. So this was a, a transformation of the secret agent John Courage character, and I, and I really liked it. Chapter 2 walks us through the metaphysics, or as it refers to, enlightened science. And it makes an interesting claim. Now, this is a section that uh, it has that generic, I am going to talk to the players and the storytellers in a straightforward thing. It's not really in character. And these are things I consider to be semi-omniscient. And it explains the metaphysics of the technocracy and what they believe. And this chapter, to me, had to maintain a very tough illusion of do technocrats know that they are doing magic? And this chapter gives us a firm yes, no. And in one case, it says whenever a science scientist hypothesizes, they are not just implementing their will on reality. They're doing it with the backing of data, which kind of ups their amount of metaphysical oomph. And that seems to be kind of what it suggests as being the difference between technomantic and mystical magic, that you have this data informed by how you think reality works and that is internally consistent with everything that you've done before. And that makes magic hopefully in one way easier to do, less prone to paradox, less prone to uh, backlashes. But on the downside, everything you do has to be consistent with everything else you've already done in a way that mystic paradigms don't seemingly require. And the book also, though, recognizes that whenever a scientist hypothesizes, they have a moment in which they can force their will on reality. That if a bunch of scientists have a bunch of different theories, whichever theory wins out through the consensus is going to basically be how reality works, which is a powerful statement. And the book states that the goal of the technocracy is to stay in front of science so that they can coordinate discoveries so that the safest and best outcome is the one that manifests or the one that reality will work by. Any new discovery could go in a half dozen directions, and it is kind of a combination of social, environmental, and and. Uh, academic forces that determine which of them is ultimately going to be true. Where in other parts, it kind of suggests that there are fundamental laws of reality that you are discovering. The other thing that I kind of liked is that this chapter tries to suggest that advancing technology allows more or less the distribution of magical items without distributing the magic itself. If you ask a hermetic to heat up soup, and don't give them access to any other tools, they summon a fire elemental. If you want to be able to repeat that trick, you now have the knowledge to summon a fire elemental, and we don't want everyone to have access to that kind of technology. So instead, what the technocracy does is it invents the microwave, where everyone can use the device without necessarily harnessing the power of molecular excitation personally. Uh, they are able to distribute items that kind of have the magic baked into them without necessarily granting people the ability to change reality in the same way. And then you get into an argument on what 
it's the nature of a tool and so on. Paradox then becomes the byproduct of inconsistencies or deep incompatibilities between the laws of enlightened reality that have been laid down so far. Uh, they bubble up periodically, and the more grand the effect, the more questionable those emergences can be, of which my favorite one is on page 42. It kind of suggests that America was a paradox backlash. Also, at the same time, it needs to leave room for playing characters to be able to do interesting things. So uh, it makes mention that there are spontaneous theories, which is to say you can do some improvisational bullshit to pull off an effect. Also, sometimes technocrats have the ability to notice something about reality that just kind of swings their way kind of as an ultimate option. The example they give is you're not using Entropy 3. You've just noticed that a ceiling was very poorly maintained and is about to collapse. We get a brief discussion on what nodes are, uh, how technocrats view uh, quintessence as being the leftover energy of the Big Bang, uh, or as it describes it, sputum of a god, which I think is probably the most ignominious way that, um, that quintessence has been referred to, as well as how technocrats view avatars, that it is generally accepted within the technocracy that there seems to be an inner voice that everyone has, we just don't talk about it too much. And then the final part of that section is it gives us a walkthrough of the nine spheres, which are just kind of as you accept, uh, expect it, as well as each group's relationship with their tools, devices, styles, and an additional thing that they refer to as theorems. And it makes mention that psionics do exist. It is somewhat rare. It tends not to go well in the long term and not to let characters have more than two spheres that are psionically activated. You mentioned the part on uh, improvising magic. Um, I, I thought that was a very good thing to put in there because I, I have spoken with some players who wanted to play technocrat characters in, in online games, and they had storytellers that got really, really strict with them and didn't let them do much. And so I think it's really helpful for all of uh, the mage players out there to put this little section saying, hey, storytellers, you, know, you, you can lighten up a little. There's a section called The Fifth Essence, where they, they talk about, we don't call it quintessence, we call it primal energy, and, and that, it was great to have that there, but it failed to mention how the technocracy generates primal energy from sleepers, which we have seen in past convention books. It, it says in this section in Guide to the Technocracy that, yeah, there are places in the world where primal energy collects and, and we get it there, and it's like, okay, that's good, but you just didn't mention how progenitors have hospitals where they pull quintessence out of people, and Iteration X gets people together and makes them do really boring things, and it pulls quintessence out of people, and, you know, etc. It just wasn't mentioned, and I was looking forward for that mention because I wanted to see some mage book that said, look, the technocracy does this and the traditions don't. Or the technocracy does it, and the traditions do it too, only the traditions do it like this. Because uh, for me, that's very interesting. When mage started out, all the different mages went to places on Earth to get their quintessence because they really wanted that stuff. And then later on, we find out that the technocracy is pulling it out of people, which is, for me, is, is very interesting because in a sense, it's making mages be like vampires. You can take normal people and get what you need out of them. And those people lose something in the process and, and you know someone's manipulating them, someone's taking advantage of them. And so it's like, okay, well, does the, only the technocracy do this because they've got some insight that the traditions don't? Or are all the mages doing this? And, and doesn't this kind of change the, the tone and, and some details about the world of mage? There's um, a mention of methodologies. These are like subgroups within conventions in the technocracy. It says you can re-roll tens if you're using a, a type of procedure or a type of 
techno magic basically that lines up well with your specific methodology and i thought well that's that's really neat that that's pretty cool however uh storytellers should try that out in a few game sessions and um you know think about is this hurting game balance are your players getting too powerful too quickly with this or not so it's something to keep in mind i would try it before stating oh yeah that's a part of my game chapter three is called history lessons and goes over um, the history of the world through the eyes of the technocracy. This does an extension of something we got in the New World Order where you had two opposing views of, of history. One that stated that the New World Order it has this ancient old tradition of uh, people trying to make sure that dissident ideas are, are removed and that there is a hidden group of people kind of guiding the progress of the world. And another view that says that the New World Order kind of just sprang into existence under Queen Victoria when the Order of Reason was reorganized into the Technocratic Union. This goes one step further and posits three complete views of history. One is proffered by Professor Tanaka of Iteration X, which is a what is known as the elitist view of history, that there are a few people, most of them who are enlightened, that are responsible for advancing history, that Leonardo da Vinci was an enlightened artificer, or, or that uh, Johannes Kepler advanced uh, astronomy by being a secret technocrat, and so on and so forth. And, and first edition is kind of replete with that, where we find out that Isaac Newton was gunned down in the 1920s by youth Anatoy assassins, and so on, which is exciting, to say the least. Uh, the second view is the Professor Richardson, who elaborates a conspiratorial view of history, that technocrats have driven history forward, but through mortal agents, that maybe Leonardo da Vinci wasn't an enlightened artificer, but one of his apprentices would seed ideas and then put it into Leonardo's hands, or that Leonardo's inventions would be, some of them would be selected to be able to be passed on to the masses, and other ones wouldn't for the safety of everyone. Uh, the third view of things is Terence White's view of the empowerment theory, that most things are done by sleepers, and the technocracy is empowered by the masses, that the technocracy is kind of an embodiment of the will of humanity to survive, and that the technocracy doesn't control all of history, it just adapts to its outcome. And it mentions that it is important that a character's view of history align with whatever view of history their direct supervisor has. So we, we kind of get both things, that there are multiple truths, but at the end of the day, there's a truer truth because there's somebody who signs your paycheck, as it were, uh, and who dispatches you on new missions. There were kind of uh, four key ages that they line up. They have everything up to about the convention of the White Tower in 1325, where you have the, the fall of Mistridge. It is taken by canons, and they, they talk there about the four pillars of society in the Dark Ages. One was the nobility, one was the peasantry, one was the clergy, and the final one, wizards. And they talk about how the clergy was important because it was one of the few institutions that was interested in, in saving art and writing and other notions after the fall of Rome. 
and the wizards had a strong interest in things around them being as scary as possible because only if the world is full of big, bad, dangerous things does it make sense to give 10% of your grain to this local coven that is going to protect you from whatever attacks in the night. So they had a vested interest in reality being as dangerous as possible, thus their services were as in high demand. And that one of the interpretations is that the fall of Mistridge was not driven by the order of reason, but was just a manifestation of peasants being tired with this. That the the true fall of Mistridge was a peasant uprising. It just and it was just the technocracy who decided to bring cannons to speed things up. Then we get kind of the Renaissance through the 1800s, and the book makes an interesting note that. The rate of change and societal advancement in the 1800s was so rapid that the technocracy got lazy and allowed mysticism and the occult to kind of uh, sneak in and a reorganization under Queen Victoria was required. And then through the 1940s, we see the process of the technocrats kind of losing control. Uh, one of the arguments that, that frequently pops up is, Does do the technocrats control all of science? And to me, the answer depends on when. For the longest time, it is reasonable to say that most of science was probably led by technocrats, or at least I think that is a fine in-world explanation. And then at the turn of the, the 20th century, uh, science was being guided by technocrats, uh, that mortals were making a few breakthroughs. But as the close of the 20th century approaches us, the technocracy is trying to keep up. They still have hypertech, and they are just trying to very quickly uh, sort the good advances, as it were, from the bad advances that sleepers have made, and then kind of uh, twisting it to their own goals. So it went from them being in the lead to them being side by side to them trying to keep up. Uh, the section ends with where things are now and talks about the rise of the Red Star. Again, uh, I, I completely forgot that the Week of Nightmares happened in second edition and and occurred before the, f the formal start of Revised. Talks about what it refers to as some vampiric force, two nuclear devices, and there being a reality shift. And I'm like, man, that's that's a lot. That sentence has a bunch packed into it. And there's a few people that are a couple hundred years old. And that is that is chapter three. What did you think of the history of the technocracy? I thought it was really fun to see a lot of Sorcerer's Crusade references in there. I, th mm -hmm. I thought Sorcerer's Crusade was a, was a great game, fun books to read, and seeing all the references in there, yeah, that that's just that's fun, and it, it's I think it's neat even in game to make links between the two. I thought it was very interesting how at the end they mention this idea that the technocracy believes that they are not only justified in causing small conflicts around the world. But they feel it is their duty to cause these small conflicts because it will help avoid larger conflicts. And when I say large conflict, I'm talking about World War One, World War Two, like that. And so that that is a very interesting ethical gray area that a storyteller might be able to uh, pull into a game, not only for a technocracy-centered game, but also for tradition mages working against the technocracy. I, I think it's just really fun to, at the end of a story or towards the end of a chronicle, to have the players uh, face off with some technocracy leader and he explains, oh, I'm not really as evil as you think because I'm doing these good things in the world. And then the players have that moment where they kind of scratch their head and it's like, are we the bad guys? We've got to think about yeah. this. <laughs> 
Overall, for the for this history chapter, I don't know what to say because I think it was a little too meta for me. Because at, at the ground level, after reading through the whole chapter, it's like, okay, this is a little less fun and interesting for me because it, it gives this impression that sleepers are doing all of these interesting things and kind of pulling the technocracy along with them who reacts to all these things. But then on another level... Uh, this book is written to be technocracy leadership talking to new recruit technocrats. And so it makes a lot of sense that the technocracy leadership would want to sweep a lot of things under the rug and say, oh, no, no, we're not doing all these secret scary things. We're just trying to keep up with those spunky, ambitious uh, sleepers. And so, yeah, it would make sense that that would be the info handed to new recruit technocrats. And so it's like, how do I interpret this? But very interesting chapter, worth a read. The reorganization that they talk about under Queen Victoria and Rathbone Skeleton Keys as kind of being this fun time to be a technocrat, for lack of a better term, that that the whole world is connected, that um, you are empowered not only by enlightened society, but in this case, the British Empire to run around and fix things. And it talks about, like, we killed a lot of ghosts at the end of the 1800s. And I'm like, man, I want to play that game. And it kind of makes me excited to see what Victorian mage ultimately winds up looking like. And I, I'm curious to see if they they stick the landing. Yeah, that, that section on gentleman adventures was pretty cool. And that tied with the art on page 74, where it shows someone in uh, like early 20th, late 19th century levels of technology seemingly landing on the moon, uh, I thought was pretty neat. So chapter four is entitled Protocols. And this is the real meat to me if you plan on playing a technocracy game and you want it to be a technocracy game about technocrats, which may sound stupid. It is perfectly possible to run a technocracy game where your characters aren't really interfacing with the wider world or a wider technocratic union. When I run tradition games, it is not uncommon for characters to spend large periods of time in no way interacting with their traditions. The expectation, though, in a technocracy game, at least as presented, is it will not be working that way. Uh, the first thing it does is it lays down the basic ranks. And this is something that we've gotten in a couple places, but here it kind of harmonizes it and puts it all together and kind of gives you an idea of this group's blotty blah is the same level of power as this group's uh, blotty blees. And it says, at the lowest level, we have citizens. They are the foundation of the order. It is an honorific reserved for the personnel and that people trying to be derogatory refer to them as proles. Uh, this includes Iteration X's comrades, the NWO sympathizers, the syndicate's providers, and the Void Engineer's technicians. Uh, above that, we have minor agents, which are referred to as employees, and they have possibly the capacity for inspired science with certain devices and may be recruited as a minor agent to work directly with a local construct. Uh, these are the Iteration X's ciphers. These are more black suits, syndicate associates, or void engineer students. Above that, we have the enlightened people who are, are properly awakened or enlightened or capable of enlightened feats of operation. They have demonstrated uh, loyalty and exceptional promise in some way, shape, or form. Uh, students, armatures, managers, scientists, gray men, experts who uh, supervise amalgams in some way and may serve as representatives to a symposium, uh, Iteration X's programmers, the progenitors, research associates, uh, commanders in the void engineer. And then finally, we have the masters, which 
directly supervises either a, a dangerous geographic area or oversees a, a large number of constructs. In a way I didn't really expect, the book directly answers the question of what is control? Because to me, every book after this, it becomes shrouded in mystery again. Here they specifically say that masters may also directly observe us through control, a group mind accessible to any technocrat of this rank. You're like, oh, okay, well that that destroyed all the mystery of what control was. And then they have this conspiracy that they mention about the old masters and the inner circle, uh, a conspiracy that exists above and beyond. I like the idea that that is what control is. I don't know if I wanted that direct explanation, but it's certainly one I can run with. It is weird to think of control as like an app on someone's phone. Like, what is control and how do I access it? Like, well, uh, type in your password. It's the second icon on the left. See that little logo? Yeah, that's control. And you're like, oh, okay. And it's just like a BBS system where people could post it like, oh my God, a guy in my, in my, in my amalgam said the funniest thing the other day. I was just walking around the construct and we have this new recipe for brownies that we like. And you're like, that's what runs the technology. Okay. This, this explains a lot. <laughs> um, <laughs> the second thing in this section is the precepts of Damien, where it goes over the six articles that kind of uh, state what the technocracy is trying to do. And we've gone over those before originally in the NWO book, and it's basically shepherd the masses, destroy uh, reality deviants, define the nature of the universe, preserve the gauntlet, convince the masses of the benevolence of science, and bring stasis in order to reality. And one of my favorites is um, where they talk about Article 2, convincing the masses of the benevolence of science, commerce, and politics and the power of rationality. And they're like, yeah, this one, um, this one's been real easy, not going to lie. And I'm like, oh, that's good. <laughs> um, and then what I think is interesting, they talk about the pogrom, which word choice aside, Article 5 says, destroy reality deviance. Their recklessness threatens our security and our progress towards unity. Of course, unity is capitalized. It talks about why the pogrom is a thing and many traditional mages are unaware of their policy of killing other reality deviants because that's the point when you kill a ravaging vampire that is killing peasants or what have you the goal is to make it so that no one else notices so they kind of say no the pogrom in a certain way is a good thing and it gives the example of each time a cabal of orphans assaults a safe house or every time some foolish chantry makes a major strike against the technocratic front support for the pogrom increases the idea is if the goal of the technocracy is to keep reality safe and these people are attacking the technocracy, these people are then a threat to reality. What did they expect us to do in response? So it's like claiming that somebody is is brutish or a bully because when you throw a rock at them, they threw a whole bunch of rocks back. And the technocracy is champion rock throwers. Uh, the final thing of note in this section, to me at least, are the idea of what the protocols are. It seems as if, if I had to summarize what a technocratic operation was kind of at its base, you would have three questions. What is your degree of membership? Uh, Where are you within the internal structure and hierarchy of it? What is your degree of separation, which indicates how friendly you are with 
the uh, the technocracy and its mission? And finally, what are your mission protocols that whenever a technocrat is asked to do something in the field, their supervisor will say, hey, you need to do this. But by the way, you are not authorized to use vulgar procedures when carrying this out. You are not expected to kill anyone. Or in another case, it may say, hey, we need to abduct these people for further processing, or we're just trying to grab information. And then it kind of gives standard protocols regarding supernatural groups, which is to say, this is what you do when you come in contact with a marauder. This is what you do in contact with a fairy. And there are various contingencies that they give that go into details. But I really liked the fact that it's like, hey, one of the advantages that you have as a technocrat is every mission is going to have this secondary consideration of what am I allowed to do in addition to what can I actually do? And then what can I actually get away with? If it turns out I need to use a vulgar procedure, is that something that I'm just going to tell my supervisor or is that something I'm going to hide? And I like that additional layer of consideration. And it always gives you this front side, back side of this is the mission I was given. This is the fallout from the mission that I was given. The section rounds out with a notion on structure and influence how fronts are set up, whether or not the technocracy has orbital weapons platforms that can nuke a shantry from space. And there's this lovely little aside called what? No smart bombs. And the book's kind of like, well, if that's the kind of game you want to run, we can't stop you. But still, (laughs) there's not a lot of us uh, and there's only so much that we can get away with. So again, uh, as Adam said about the previous chapter, there are certain contrivances the book has to admit to make this a book that people can use to play the technocracy. So there is going to be a little bit of dissonance with with what has been established so far. Uh, The precepts of Damien were, of course, uh, laid out again. And I thought they were interesting because this is the place in this book that alludes to or hints at most strongly the um, original concepts of the technocracy when Mage started. Page 81 sidebar. Uh, had an interesting note there. It was talking about how much do technocrats really understand of what they are doing? I mean, do they talk about every day the, the metaphysic of magic or what is their approach or, or level of understanding of the super science that they do? And it basically came down on the side of uh, technocrats don't know they're doing magic. They really think they're using a higher than average or, or advanced technology. And um, it, it really wanted to establish that. It, it said only when they get very high up in their arete and their spheres are they given the full scoop. And that is certainly one way to do it. That is the way a lot of mage fans handle it, and that works fine in games. For my own chronicles, I, I prefer to have more of the enlightened technocrats aware of what's going on metaphysically. I, I just I think that makes it more interesting. I think it, it helps make them a little bit more sinister bad guys uh, when they're hiding the truth instead of they're just as duped as you, as you are, they're just as duped as sleepers are. And it, I think it adds an element that, that adds some spice to my chronicles. But I, I certainly understand people who would, would go along with the recommendation they have in this uh, page 81 sidebar. Mission protocols, I think, are a great storyteller f- a tool for influencing a chronicle. Uh, there's there's a section saying these are mission protocols. In this place on the map of, of North America, it's going to be under this given symposium, and this symposium's leadership is going to have certain rules like, uh, you know, always rough up reality deviants if you see them across the street, or definitely leave them alone if you see them across the street. Yeah, th- that kind of thing. It's just how much do you want to emphasize this one and how much do you want to de-emphasize this other thing? And I, I think it's nice to have this spelled out saying, look, storytellers, you can influence these things. You can have rules that say to your players, hey, don't just shoot everybody you're suspicious of. you got to do this first. got to do that first. So 
And you can say how different symposiums have a different rule set, and so this is not the same in every town. So I, I thought that was a very helpful to, uh, tool to give to storytellers. And I like how they give a framework for giving stories to your players. They say, look, uh, in the technocracy, there's more structure. Uh, they're assigned to amalgams, to teams. You're assigned to work together. Mm -hmm. And because of this, there's a supervisor, and the supervisor gives jobs to the amalgam. And so basically... Uh, the storyteller can say, look, I want to run this mage story for you, and this is how I'm getting you started on it. And that structure is very useful and very helpful. But I just thought it would have been nice to mention how if you have a group of players who are very self-motivated, they, they know mage and they know what they want to do and they, and they want to do their own thing, you can be more relaxed on this. You could, say the, uh, you could take an amalgam and say, look, you guys are in New York City. Your job is to take this section of New York City and just monitor it for scary activity. And, and this is a format where your players can direct their own stories, and as a storyteller, you can go along with them. So you don't have to always use maximum structure. Yeah, that's my thoughts on Chapter 4. Chapter 5 is a tour of the conventions. And again, we have done an episode for literally every one of these. Uh, but it updates the current state of the conventions and more importantly it's all written in the same book so you get an idea of each convention with each other convention in mind and i think the the genius of this chapter is that for each it indicates a failing or or problem of what they want to do uh, for instance uh, iteration x says they have volume on their side, but they tend to ignore the lower levels, that they worry that the technology that they create has become their masters rather than their servants. Uh, they've become too reliant on the timetable and their general role is to provide hardware. For the NWO, they are, as a group, demand autonomy to do whatever they want, but also demand compliance from every other group in terms of what their ultimate thinking is. And it becomes a problem when the Collegium of History says, no, this is the way history is. No, this is the way the history is. And then suddenly the rest of the technocracy needs to follow along. And they said that the, the, the failing of the NWO is that it has been obsessed with pursuing power, that members of disbursement have been killed for denying them funding and that they're abusing their role as internal police. Uh, and many conventions, I thought this was interesting, views the NWO as being too harsh on sleepers. Progenitors, they kind of indicate are the most out there. They describe them as being the most visceral, that they are the group that fundamentally controls what makes us human, and that they have an exceptionally large disconnect between what the front line say and what's happening in control. Uh, the syndicate is listed as being the most outwardly harmful to society, and that they need to do enough to justify their existence, that the uh, Special Projects Division is sending worm-tainted products out into the world, which is actively harming sleepers, and someone has to be aware of that on some levels. And also, at the same time, you have the fact that they one entire arm is dedicated towards vice and illegal activities. So yeah, it's bringing in the money, but kind of at what cost? And they kind of mentioned that the special projects division and the pharmacopias of the progenitors literally directly damage 
sleepers. Uh, they put drugs and products out into the world that are, are, are flat out harmful. Finally, they list the fundamental failing of the void engineers as being insular. They are the most wonderful. The fact that they put a person on the moon allowed the Fae to return. They simultaneously have the smallest gap between their enlightened and their unenlightened staff. Like it's it's super hard to keep up the edifice that uh, we are not uh, magic shooting spacemen when you're literally on a spacecraft. And at the same time, they just kind of have to send a group of space marines to what is likely going to be their death to kill off some reality deviant that may slip through their network of satellites. And I think that having all of those things next to each other, showing how flawed or at least what the internal tensions are within each group was great. I, I always love when a book kind of cuts things to the core and says, this is this is really what we're trying to get across here. And that is something I, I very much appreciated. You get notable figures, you get stereotypes for each of those groups. It, each one is a good two or three page spread. And then we get a few character templates and to further kind of my criticism that control is dealt with oddly, they give you a character template for control or a member from control, which doesn't really fit with the previous statement that it's kind of this combined mind group that has emerged across everyone who is at manager level or higher. This chapter plus the chapter from Book of Mirrors kind of outlining how the technocracy operates, if someone were like, I need to run a technocracy game in two hours, that's what I would give them. I thought it was nice to to see the the shortcomings or weaknesses laid out. That was not something I noticed in in previous convention books. So that that was very nice. This is uh, probably a good place since we have laid out the official uh, groups and factions of the technocracy to talk about some of the very unofficial groups inside the technocracy. Uh, there's a section in an earlier chapter talking about the underground resistance groups in the technocracy, and these are groups that are trying to accomplish something in the technocracy, but they have to keep things very quiet because they are going. Against against the grain. Uh, there are four listed here, and these uh, could be very interesting for uh, your players to get involved in if you're running a technocracy-centered chronicle. Uh, first off, we have the Strategic Prognostications and Data Dispersal Unit. This covert intelligence clique is made up of mostly statisticians, uh, ivory tower agents, and pan-dimensional core ops who gather obscure intel and then run arcane calculations. They pass information discreetly to technocrats who keep out of corruption so they can solve problems that threaten the original principles of the technocracy. Some tech technocrats hear rumors of this group but call them the Cassandra Complex or simply the Angels. They seem to know the truth about the Syndicate's Special Projects Division. Next up, we have the Harbingers of Avalon. This influential, well-hidden group has existed in England for over 300 years. They hold reverence for the myth of King Arthur and his Knights of the Round Table. The 12 members support the British Empire and control an elite amalgam of field ops called Zero Division. They believe in honor and dignity and are experts in secret politicking. We have the Friends of Courage. Secret agent John Courage, a rogue man in black, has inspired many in the technocracy to follow his example and work to expose or eliminate corruption within the technocracy. Like their idol, the secret friends believe the technocracy's ideals are good, but the organization has gotten off track. Unlike their idol, they keep as low a profile as possible. And we wrap up with Project Invictus, which we've mentioned uh, in a past episode. The corruption of the Syndicate's Special Projects Division has become known to a select few within the technocracy. They started Project Invictus to cleanse the taint and rid the union of the reality deviants who direct the SPD. 
This mission is still quite new and very few in the technocracy know anything about it. Trusted, capable agents are assigned missions to recover SPD data and strike against it. The utmost care is taken to keep the mission secret and carry it out without alerting anyone outside the Union to the technocracy's problems. Were, were there any of those that you thought was your favorite? The Strike Force Zero is apparently brought up in Demon Hunter X, and at some point I need to go back and read that because this, yeah, is, the, this is the second point that's been brought up. Yeah. I thought the Friends of Courage and the Cassandra Complex could could be a lot of fun. And, of course, uh, Project Invictus is just ripe for, for yeah. use in your game. I think it's cooler when you introduce it really, really slowly. You just have the characters perform questionable missions, and after two or three of those, you start to think, what is going on? Seriously, what is going on? And then you can give them. When they're curious, give them a few tidbits, and that can be fun. I like the wordplay of the Cassandra Complex as a name group, and I am, I am just a sucker for that when it is well done. So, And maybe as an actuary, I'm slightly biased towards uh, a, group, a cross-functional group of statisticians that try and predict calamity and then prevent it. It's like, action actuaries! So chapter six is character recruitment, which is to say how to make a character. And it starts off with what I think is some of the best advice on role-playing a technocrat, which is to say, remember that you are human. A, a technocrat is first and foremost a mage, which is funny because then it's like, even if half of your body has been replaced by cybertech, you've dealt with intensive conditioning and you've been genetically modified to be able to survive at the bottom of the ocean. You're like, <laughs> remember you're human. You're like, ah, is that what you think it is? <laughs> um, the, the second piece of advice they give is to avoid techno babble, And this I consider to be a direct assault against me as a person because one one of the greatest powers a technocrat has is is technobabble. It talks about how it is also important to remember that you can improvise, that you can have emotions. And the last one is to go back to what Adam said earlier, keep track of who the good guys are and that a lot of a chronicle is going to be, are we doing the right things for the wrong reason or are we doing the wrong things for the for the right reasons or are we doing the right things for the right reasons? And, and hopefully that is, that is a moral space that you get to explore. Another thing that it does in this chapter is there is at various times in Mage a very, for lack of a better term, like playful and satirical presentation of the technocracy that, yeah, you have these hard bitten secret agents that are all wearing black suits, but every one of them has the same Ticonderoga number two pencil. And if they don't have that with them at all times, they will be demoted. Just kind of this, this, this humor about the folly of bureaucracy and the difficulty of it and it being tongue in cheek. And that is tonally something that was inconsistent throughout the book, but it comes out in this chapter where it's like, by the way, you may be a a genetically engineered super being, but you still need to have your TPS reports done by the end of the week. I don't care if you have psychic powers. And I, I kind of liked that because, it gives you a place to to blow off steam and invent things, as it were. The last bit of advice it gives is that you need to work as a team and that the technocracy among groups is the one where, as Adam said, you're not probably going to start the adventure by everyone meeting at a bar, figuring out who they are, and then being assigned a mission from a king or something like that. The technocracy is great because it already gives you a reason to be together. The rest of the chapter is character creation stuff, and I I don't feel a strong need to go into um, the details of all of these, but
but but to me some of the highlights are the fact that it gives some ideas of what genius eidolons are going to be which is to say what the avatar essences are and i really like the fact that it gave some ideas of what a technocratic avatar is going to look like in addition to that we get a whole bunch of additional natures and demeanors and one of the things that mage does that none of the other lines do or none of the other lines do that i recall is indicate a strength and a weakness of each so say for instance you are an investigator as your nature or demeanor and it says one of your strengths is your inquisitiveness and you are very good at answering the question okay if we do this why does this other thing happen but on the downside you tend to be curious and that can sometimes get you killed that if you are a machine you are diligent stoic and hardworking. but on the downside you are relentless creepy and prone to burnout and I, I feel as if we get a little bit of a, a section that gives me a little bit of a side eye. We get a lot of abilities. We get a whole bunch of new talents like negotiation and new speak and energy weapons and hypertech. And I am not a fan of a proliferation of abilities. I think it just creates more things that you're going to have to dump points into. The only thing I can think is if one of the superpowers of the technocracy, and this is something that we we saw first, I think in the Iteration X book, is it is a group that is disproportionately likely seemingly to use the attribute to an inform in a retail role of because I did this preparation, because I set up this experiment and I did my homework, this magical effect is going to be easier and vice versa, where you use magic to make a mundane effect way easier. That if you're a technocrat, you don't want to lump everything into science or research or technology. So maybe they wanted to spread that out by having more of these knowledges, because we never get a good system for this. And I'm not quite sure how to feel with that. This was the the, the first real crunchy chapter that we got. Uh, well, chapter six and chapter eight uh, seem to me to be the real meat of this book. And what I mean by that is after you've read the book and you put it on the shelf and you pull it off later, probably chapter six and eight that you're going to be referencing. I saw a... Um, reinforcing of this idea of secondary skills that we got from Book of Shadows, the Mage Player's Guide, which was part of first edition. Because the book says, look, here are some primary skills and we're going to you know change some out from the primary skills that you find on this the standard mage second edition character sheet but here is this whole group of secondary skills it's like saying we, we really like this idea and of course we, we talked in our book of shadows episode about how you don't have to have secondary skills in your mage game but um, you know they, they can add something if, if done well the energy weapons skill is new and i, I want to take a, just a minute to talk about this because that could potentially be a very interesting element to your Mage Chronicles. The Technocrats, of course, have uh, laser guns and energy rifles and things of that nature. And, of course, in our standard normal reality, the only uh, guns that we have shoot uh, pellets and bullets and, and things, BBs and stuff like that. So when you have energy guns in your uh, Mage Chronicle, it is probably going to be a device with a, a capital D, which is basically a magic item for technocrats, or it is going to be a focus for a forces effect, which again, uh, you've primarily got mages uh, doing this, although you could argue that um, if it is a level one or two device, it could be used by extraordinary citizens, that is uh, sleepers who have a good familiarity with the technocracy. Here we are, we get this idea that energy guns are quite different from regular bullet guns. And because of that, a different skill is needed. Now the effect of this is when you have uh, tradition mages raiding a technocrat uh, location, they're going to grab some weapons and it's like, oh, I, I don't know how to use this. And they, then they drop it. 
And so this this could give an edge to your technocrat. Let's see, there's a science skill that has some specialties, you know, physics, chemistry, etc. There are 19 specialties. <laughs> That's a lot of specialties. If you're really into the science, we got the science here for you. I think there's a conceptual overlap between uh, spheres and skills because my understanding up until this point is that when technocrats study the nine spheres of the you know the magic system of this game, what they think they are doing is they are studying you know super science, hypertech, that that sort of thing, very advanced technology, and so they're they're when they're studying forces three, you know, to try to you know spend experience to get to forces three, the character in the world is reading a really thick, a really advanced physics books that uh, a standard uh, sleeper physics grad student couldn't make heads or tails of. But here in this rule book, we, in chapter six, we have a whole bunch of um, skills to cover that, including a skill called hypertech, which is like the super science skill. So it's like, well, is it the spheres that is the super science or is it the hypertech skill that is the super science? I think that's worth discussing. I think a storyteller should kind of hash that out. Uh, we've got a number of merits and flaws in here that don't really have a system behind them. It's like I read the merit and it's like, it's like this, but it's like, okay, well, do I get a bonus or a minus for this or that? You, you don't tell me. And so it, in a book with this page count, I, I expect some systems of some sort behind my merits and flaws. Uh, we get into uh, new backgrounds for technocrats. Uh, there's a new background called patron, which is an older, more influential, powerful technocrat who helps you out. And it's like, well, sounds a lot like a mentor to me. There's a lot of overlap between the patron and the mentor backgrounds. That's something, uh, as a storyteller, I would want to hash out. We've got um, backgrounds for devices. That is, again, with a capital D, magic items. We've also got requisitions, which is getting your hands on some devices, or we have secret weapons, which is getting your hands on some devices. So there's some overlap between these three backgrounds. Now, you could argue that, well, requisitions is for mundane sleeper technology, like a real-world standard M1 Abrams tank to knock over buildings or something. It's like, well, oh, okay, I'm not going to argue with that. But still, these three backgrounds seem to have a lot of overlap. So as a storyteller, I want to sit down and hash that out before I tell my players to roll up characters. I did like that we do get a system for requisitions, though. I think one of the fun things is it goes over uh, how outsourcing, borrowing, asking nicely, stealing, and requisitioning all work in terms of ways to get stuff you think you might need. The one thing that always got me about that is it depends on the players knowing what could theoretically be available to them before it would work. And I'm not sure how that works in game. I haven't run a heavy technocrat chronicle. Like I've done a low level one where it's missions in a group and, uh, Hey, this is one way to learn mage, but like to be like, Hey, I need to borrow an Allenson hard suit. They need to know that the Allenson hard suit exists. And I'm, I am curious how storytellers deal with that. Chapter seven is entitled storytelling and gives you a whole bunch of ideas of plots that you can do. And one of the things that I found particularly interesting in here is on page 190, there is a list of long-term plots and secret societies in the technocracy. Uh, it talks about the special products projects division, which is the, uh, cooperative effort between the technocracy and the Pentax corporation, uh, dating back to the fifties, which has, caused all sorts of problems that kind of lists itself as a, a hidden cancer that low level syndicate members are mind blind to the, to the problem that it's very hard to detect, destroy or document it. And that 
some people have kind of been caught by the same taint. You have the cult of autochthonia, the spiritual influence, the the notional reason why iterators are not allowed access to the the spirit sphere, that there's this powerful machine god that is kind of controlling everything, Um, that there is a neo-Templar movement within the New World Order, that there may be the Xerophi, which is the a sorcerer's crusade group that was within the technocracy that kind of played the role as internal police when it was still the order of reason. Um, and they're still running around doing stuff. And finally, Void Engineer Barabbai. And it's kind of suggested in a couple places that Void Engineers are exceptionally likely to turn from the technocracy. I never quite feel that they've done a good enough job telling me why. Uh, And then the rest of the chapter kind of goes through different chronicle types that you can have. And most of them are pretty straightforward that it's the world of darkness that you can have a chronicle centered around dealing with the schism within the technocracy or that there are ethical shades of gray or what happens when your characters gain access to great power, as well as some description of how to use the structure of the technocracy in a chronicle and how to recognize that as the characters are are moving through the world. Finally, it gives you some ideas of individual uh, agendas, which are things that a symposium can tell you to do. And this I liked because it gives a framework for a storyteller to be like, here are some missions that you can run. So you may have an overall theme that you want to have for your game. Here are specific instances of that. And it talks about, uh, do you want to run a chronicle where your goal is to eliminate reality deviance, which can let you do a monster of the week is your goal to recruit which i love having a session on recruitment in every game because it really forces the group of characters to be like wait what are we actually and if we really tried to convince another adventurer in dungeons and dragons or another scoundrel in blades in the dark or another uh Vizlay in invisible sun to join a group how would we actually do that and i think that is role-playing gold you can deal with internal threats. You can explore the the deeps of the Umbra, or you can investigate the unknown or set up a front, of which, uh, hands down, my favorite is the establish a front. You have to set up a new safe house, a new front organization. Uh, and I think it is very important in a mage game to periodically have a session that really focuses on interfacing with sleepers in the mundane world. And I think this does a uh, gives you a, a good opportunity to do that. Well, chapter seven was uh, the chapter on storytelling, and I suspected when I started it that like a lot of uh, late second edition books, it was going to give me like general um, storyteller advice, and it didn't, and and I was glad because we get a lot of that. I really liked uh, the idea of uh, planning one-shots and then through those, every second or third story, giving out some hints of your larger background story. I thought that, and they make reference to the X-Files uh, television mm-hmm. show, which I never saw, I'm going to rent. But um, I thought that was a neat idea. However, I just wanted to warn new storytellers, that don't get too committed to this. After you have a couple of one-shots, your players might really latch onto something and want to run off in another direction. And, and giving them the freedom to do that can be a really great thing for your chronicle. It mentions the Project Invictus kind of storyline they have going, which takes more importance in the revised era. I think that's interesting, and I liked seeing it here, but it I just wanted to call attention to the assumption that is required to make this run as written, and that is that within the technocracy, 
dimensional science, which we normally call the spirit sphere, is something that is very, very restricted. Not many technocrats know it. Not many technocrats are allowed to study it or encouraged to study it or, or have reason to or even have access to it if they want to pull off the books from the shelf to, uh, you know, as it were, to study. That's not one of them. And so, yeah, this really relies on a very limited access to one of the basic spheres of, of this game. And also, it, it kind of assumes that when technocrats learn dimensional science, it's going to be very hard for them to do the level one spirit effect that tradition mages can do, which is basically see aura. So the special projects division, someone's infected by a bane and, and, and they're you know making uh, tainted tech and handing it out and it's hurting lots of people. And it's assumed that technocrats cannot use a dimensional science level one effect and say, hey, that guy's got black streaks in his aura. He's, he's, I, I'm not so sure about him. I'm going to check him out. It's something to think about it. The, the way I've always tackled that with the SPD is I, I came to the same conclusion, like in the same way that I find it funny that the Alibatine are dedicated in a lot of cases to destroying Nefandi, but don't actually have access to entropy, which is kind of the easiest way to find it. And entropy allows you to also see taint of the worm that you either need to have a paradigmatic explanation of why this isn't the case, or uh, to me, the easiest way to do it is one of the Bane's gift is high taint or something similar, that there's some sort of cloaking or effect that the SPD has done to kind of prevent that from obviously spilling. Now, if you don't do that, you can have a much more menacing technocracy where everyone has just agreed to not pay attention to this. But again, yeah, the, the storyteller should be ready to, at least in my opinion, to answer that basic question. Yeah, and that leads back to another discussion. Uh, reading auras has been presented different ways in different mage books, and one of the things you know, some assembly required that you need when starting out your mage first mage chronicles to kind of hash out. Well, what can and cannot my players do when they use Spirit One and look at auras? I mean, how easy is this? How hard is that? In the past, the computer that you know, capital C that controls the convention uh, iteration X, there was a lot of mystery around. You know, what is the real source there? Is it a true AI? system that has become self-aware? Is it an umbrood pretending to be an AI system? Is it, you know, something else? There's a lot of mystery around that. This book uh, makes it more clear. It's like there is a spirit being that is posing as an AI system, calling itself the computer. It's running Iteration X. It's um, on Autochthonia. It will only allow Iteration X members uh, to, to come near to it, and that helps it hide its true nature from other mages and even other technocrats that would be able to see through the disguise. And so this is playing into the trend in revised edition to uh, make more detailed, a bit more locked down the details of the world of mage and less kind of mystery. Hey, you know, do what you want. And there's benefits and drawbacks to that. I really like this idea only mentioned in chapter seven of the Neo-Templars. Mm -hmm. And, and how they're using old techniques to pursue agendas in the modern day. I, I thought that was an interesting idea, but they give very little space to it here. It would have been kind of fun to see that a little more fleshed out. There's a section, Exploiting Structure, the Proletariat, and it's talking about how let your player characters control or greatly influence the, the proles, the you know sleepers who are basically more or less employees of the technocracy. Let the players influence them. Let the players train them. Tell them, you know, hide information from them or lay everything out, treat them well or treat them poorly. Put them under the influence of the players and then as a storyteller, take a step back and see what they do. Are they nice to their sleeper NPCs? Are they nasty to them? And whatever it is they're doing, you can expand that out 
and use that as how these superiors treat the player characters. I thought that was just a really fun idea. Uh, they talk about agendas towards the end of the chapter. They have some ideas for this is what you might do with your technocracy chronicle. And I really like that they had exploration in there because when I think of technocracy, naturally it's, okay, we're going to go out to some orbital horizon construct and have a technocracy internal story or we're going to be in, in big cities in on Earth and, and we're going to deal with technocracy kind of things. It's just where my mind naturally goes. And it says, hey, you could do an exploration theme. You could say there's some islands in the Pacific Ocean that nobody knows is there, yet they are there. What's going on? You go investigate. Or you can go underground and find something very unexpected and unusual there. I mean, it's, it's just neat. And you can do that with a technocracy-focused chronicle. I like that reminder. Help me. Uh, missions to help cover up history was another thing mentioned, and that seems really cool to me. You can take your technocracy player characters and say, look, you've got a mission to go put out this fire. And then in the process, they find out, hey, wait a minute, there's information about stuff that happened 200 years ago, and we just burnt it down. We're helping hide the facts of what happened a long time ago. What's really going on here? And that can be a really interesting story to push into and get into some of the real big overarching themes of the technocracy. Thomas Jefferson was a dinosaur. Yeah. Um, <laughs> <laughs> among other things, I was always curious about that. Like one of the one of the superpowers of the technocracy is their ability to be the world's best straight man in terms of comedy, in terms of just allowing satire and irony to kind of flow through them. And I wish we had a little bit more about that. So like... Like they talk about alternative histories and so on. And I wish there were a few more like offhand mentions to possible conspiracies that you can have. It's, it's not too hard to come up with it, but uh, it would have been nice. And the final one that I like is that they had a thing on everyday living, that there should be time for the characters to be like, how does the cyborg get along with their neighbors? Does your NWO operative have a dog? Like what, what does it look like when they decide to participate in a bake sale? And as more and more time has gone on, it has become more important to me as a storyteller to include little bits of the banal in a game to make everything pop into focus, but that's just me. Uh, chapter 8, The Arsenal. As we have frequently discussed, that uh, the hidden sphere, uh, the 10th the sphere, as it were, among technocrats is the sphere of gun which is arguably best uh, done through the uh, agent of control known as the artist Leaf Jones. And it is best done in space because there you don't have gravity holding down your incredibly massive gun. Chapter eight goes over procedures sphere by sphere. There's a bunch of routes. Great. Uh, a lot of them are kind of reskinning of the ones that are in the 2E core. And every time I look at the spheres involved, I go, eh a little bit. What I did find more interesting was the devices section, which indicated some of the neat things that you can do as a character. We get another definition of ionic cloth. We also get two dot ionic cloth. A bunch of these are kind of pulled together from previous supplements or, or slightly modified. We get awesome items like the flesh canvas that allows you to look like anyone you want, but doesn't actually change the size of your body. So I like the idea of me looking like a relatively famous young live actor, but still having my body, but my face is spot on. If that's not Cronenbergian horror for you audience, I don't know. I don't know, <laughs> I don't know what's going to be. Um, there, there are a bunch of items here, and this is the glory of the technocracy, where it talks about unarmed aerial vehicle small weapon platforms. I'm like, we have those, and no arete roll is required. So just a case where uh, the future is here, just not evenly distributed. 
And then it gives a biotech and cybernetics section, which initially I thought was going to be lame because I'm never a huge fan of like, ah, my fingers have an Arete rating. But one of the things it does is say, hey, these are passive bonuses you can get because of these things. And those I like a lot more. Like the idea that a character could have basically lock picking technology built into their body, which is always going to reduce their difficulty by three if they employ this or night site, which just lets them see in the dark without an Arite roll. I wish there were more of that kind of equipment. I think that's something New World of Darkness handles pretty well, where uh, equipment is kind of represented as just like additional dice that you get for things and such. The thing that bothered me is there are a bunch of cases where we just don't get systems, where we uh, don't get dice pools or we don't get like maximum speeds and everything like the vehicle section this this kind of this kind of bothered me um everything has a chain gun we don't know how much damage any of those chain guns do i did enjoy one the artistry on page 233 which just shows some black suit character on a motorcycle going through water and they just look like heaven and earth will have risen against me but no one will prevent me from being late to this board meeting and i just kind of like that badass representation also a uh, favorite item in this book probably the paladin sedan because somebody looked at themselves and said we're the technocracy how can we make the honda civic sexy I noticed that all the rotes stayed below four dots, and I thought that was actually uh, pretty helpful and handy for uh, starting out uh, characters. So there were a number of devices, that's a device with a capital D, uh, that needed systems. And in a book with a page count of 235 that is going to be used as the reference for three editions for the technocracy, yeah, I want some systems behind those devices, please. Uh, a section on mundane tech. This is sleeper technology, but it's really cool. You might not know about it. Oh, that, that, that's neat. We've got something on barrels. Every time you use it, you need a point of primal energy. I thought this was mundane tech, sleeper technology. Why am I spending primal energy to use it? A little, little funny for me, but maybe I'm being too nitpicky. There were a number of vehicles at the back that uh, didn't have stats. It's like, it's got these weapons, but we're not giving you any stats on those weapons. And there have been a couple of uh, second edition mage books before this where they gave us some vehicles and they gave us some stats on those vehicles at the back of the book. Very handy. Just not done here. Now, when we roll around to the recommended reading, they say recommended propaganda. Just two things to add. They did not list a book that they have a whole sidebar for on page 61. Uh, Le Mort de Arthur. I don't speak French. Don't get mad at me for the pronunciation. That was by Sir Thomas Mallory and rather an old book. It's not the only book on King Arthur. There are some others. I'm not going to go into them right now. But they had a sidebar on page 61 talking about how this book has been very influential on the technocracy. It's not just the Harbingers of Avalon. There are other technocrats that, that take this as a, a sort of a myth or a role model that's worth emulating. And so I, there are some people I've talked to that really like the idea of the high-tech sort of hidden military part of the technocracy. They've got troops, they've got gear, they've got weapons. That's pretty cool stuff. If you are interested in that, there is a, a manga, a Japanese comic book, that was translated into English uh, years back um, by Masamune Shiro called Appleseed. That is was translated by uh, Studio Proteus, put out by Dark Horse Comics. There have been many different reprints with different covers over the years, so it is really not difficult to get your hands on it. It gives really nice details and, and really excellent art and some great stories, too. Very nice details on a sort of uh, small, high-tech, very specialized sort of SWAT team or paramilitary team that deals with specific problems. You see their technology. You see the everyday life of those characters. You see their uh, military chain of command, how they deal with specific problems. 
problems, how they, you know, storm a mansion and take out all the bad guys hiding in the basement, uh, what weapons they use and what they think about those weapons. Just a lot of detail, very good artwork. And uh, this can give you some pretty cool ideas for your enforcers or your you know, void engineer space marines or, or other things like that. So I, w- I would recommend that. I think it's worth your time to take a look if you like those kinds of stories. So at that, I guess we're ready to roll into some general thoughts on the technocracy as a group and the book as a whole. Uh, what do you think, Terry? I guess my last comment is on the appendix section. I, I feel like you have the idea of will it blend? Like, can we put this into the super powerful blender? If I had to summarize the last section there, I would call it will it chain gun? Like, I just picture there's the one guy in the office and they're talking about mage stuff and he's always like, yeah, and then a chain gun pops out and shoots everyone or something like that. Like, that's <laughs> that's Mark. He's our intern. You don't have to listen to him. And they're like, Mark, you get to do whatever you want to the appendix. And he's just like, chain guns in everything. <laughs> yeah, there were chain guns and everything. It's like, you guys like chain guns. It's like, I, I don't think there's a full appreciation for how large an M230 is. Like, they'll frequently make reference to, like, round size. And I'm like, how big is that? I'm like, that is the size of a medium boat. That is not going to pop out of the back of a hit mark. I'm just putting that one out well, there. Well, one detail. I saw uh, an advertisement for a, a real-life uh, company that was selling uh, a real, actual chain minigun. And they actually had video footage of a guy standing outside some natural setting next to a river, and he's, like, firing bullets into the river. And you can see by the splashes how quickly it's dealing bullets out. It was a chain minigun, and they explain how they have a smaller bullet size, but it, it, and they were talking about how fast it pumps these things out. So it's like, okay, the technocrats are not the only people who like chain guns. Well, when it comes to um, the technocracy as a whole and, and this book, I thought this book is, is really important because when the technocracy started out in 1993 – the original team of four guys, uh, they had a very different view of the technocracy. And, and we talked about it before. I'm not going to go into all that much detail. But for many Mage books after that, the writers of, of Mage, who kind of uh, had the baton passed to them, they wanted to kind of open up the technocracy. And we, we started seeing elements of that, especially in uh, Technocracy New World Order, the first convention book for the New World Order. That that kind of went with that vibe. But this is the book where they, they really weigh in you know full strength. And uh, yeah, as I've said before, they're are pluses and minuses to both of them. And I, I certainly have no problem with the changes uh, they made to the technocracy. One idea, though, that uh, in the precepts of Damien, they sort of hinted at the ideas behind the original technocracy. And in the rest of the book, they didn't talk about that so much. Um, when Mage started, the technocracy were true pattern essence mages. They wanted to change the universe. They wanted to change reality, society, everything to make it more predictable, more logical, more ordered, more sensible. And they wanted to do this on a fundamental philosophical level. They didn't want, they didn't just want to change society so that the the laws and the economy was more orderly. It's like they wanted to change reality itself so that everything was more logical and more orderly. And, you know, for people who like big idea, abstract kind of uh, themes in their game, that was a fun thing to run with. In later editions, uh, I think they were sensitive to the fact that a lot of Mage fans were not necessarily fascinated with that notion, and they wanted a more more regular, more down-to-earth, understandable, relatable kind of a technocracy. Revised era elements that I noticed in this book, and when I say revised era, I mean the revised edition of of Mage the Ascension. Technomagic is getting harder. Contact with Horizon Constructs is getting harder. They mention that a couple of times in this book. They're sort of setting the stage for when they get to uh, revised edition. They have the Avatar Storm, and of course, at that point, the uh, orbital deep space constructs are actually cut off, and magic, even technomagic, is more difficult to do, and that's reflected in, in the rules that we get in the revised edition core book. So they're setting the stage here. 
I really liked the idea, just reference at one point, that uh, there's this suggestion that the technocracy are in denial about paradox. On, on some philosophical level, they don't want to face the notion that their sensible, logical technomagic still causes paradox. It's like they, they want to believe that they found the answer to this and, and they don't want to face the fact that maybe they didn't. I thought that was a really neat idea. I'd like to bring that into my games, but that would be something to bring in kind of subtly after a number of sessions to, to seed that in in a, a really good NPC conversation. There's little mention of symposiums, constant mention of conventions. Um, I, I, I get that. Most mage players, they, they understand how there are five separate conventions that have different, perhaps you could say, personalities. And so players latch onto that. And I think it was, it made this book very accessible and user-friendly for mage fans to really discuss the different conventions and how they're different. But I, I like to look at uh, the unity of the technocracy and to deal with uh, symposiums. I got the sense that over the editions that originally most technocrats were only going to deal with other technocrats of their convention, or most of their interactions would be that, where here it tends to focus on the amalgam, the cross-convention group, and once the players are interacting with something that is cross-convention, the need to have the symposium as the thing that coordinates across the conventions to me becomes less important. I, to me, that was just kind of a byproduct of them kind of shifting the focus to them as antagonists to like, oh, today we deal with the progenitors and tomorrow we deal with iteration X to maybe a technocrat game where you have a NWO operative, a iterator and a syndicate member, all who are part of the same amalgam as the playing characters. And when you do that, the need for the symposium kind of drops a little bit. I just wanted to say uh, players who are playing technocrat characters shouldn't uh, totally limit themselves to uh, real-world, understandable science and scientific principles. Uh, again, I liked that little section at the end of an earlier chapter where it said, hey, uh, you can improvise. You can say that your character is working with a, uh, a theory, a concept of very advanced science that just doesn't exist in the regular world of sleepers. But, um, you know, you can be creative uh, with your technomagic, with, with your sphere use. So don't don't feel like you're in a straitjacket of, hey, I studied chemistry in college, and I'm going to make my player be totally within chemistry. The, the, the one get-out-of-jail-free card I'm going to write you, uh, if you ever want to do this as a technocratic character, completely blame me, but... The, one of the greatest explanations that has ever been done was in the movie Looper, where Justin Gordon-Levitt is like, how does time travel work? And Bruce Willis just yells, there's no time to explain. And there's no time to explain, I think, is the technocratic version of blatancy, where, <laughs> where you're just like, I get to wave my hands once and it's going to be a good one. Uh, so yeah, I totally agree with Adam that like, just go nuts. I mean, it should be kooky. Like at some point there should be a moment where what the technocrats are doing and what the, um, traditions are doing are nearly identical. Like Clark's law goes goes two ways. Any sufficiently advanced technology looks like magic, and any adv sufficiently advanced magic can be made to look like a technology. I think it's important to have that go both ways. Yeah, definitely. When I started this book, I wanted info on different ways to structure the technocracy and how that might affect my chronicles. Like if I want to have a technocracy that's very uh, noble and virtuous and, and they're really doing good things with only a few bad eggs in them, then um, you know, t talk to me about how could I do that and what, how would that have an effect on the world of mage and what are some considerations I should keep in mind and what if I want to have a technocracy that really is you know, monolithic and very, very sinister and, and hiding everything. Um, 
um, and influencing the whole world, pulling the strings on you know the globe, uh, what would that be like, and what problems might I run into with that? I, I thought that would be a really nice section to have here, and I didn't really see that, but I'm not going to make that a, a big complaint of mine for two reasons. Um, I realized that that could be a difficult thing to launch into. That would not just be a sidebar. That would be, you know, that would take up some page count in a, in a book that has to cover a lot of things. Even at 235 pages, they had to cover a lot of things. And second of all, we're we're edging up on revised edition, where the world of Mage was um, there was more detailed meta plot. There was a more detailed view of the world of darkness. Some of the details were locked down to make that work. And so I'm I'm not going to complain about this. I realize revised era was was a different vibe, and so we shouldn't totally open up everything about the technology even though it, it has been changed from its original conception in 1993. I, I like this idea that there are some fundamental differences with playing technocrats as opposed to playing mystic mages. It, it's not just, you know, file off the serial numbers, change a few surface details, and go. Uh, this book does have this assumption that even though your procedures let's say, technomagic, are going to be a little more restricted because it needs to be more coincidental, it needs to be more in keeping in science, and you're going to be spending more experience points to get those skills to, to make all this stuff work. It's kind of, in terms of experience points, it's a little more expensive to be a technocrat. But on the other hand, we are going to give you much easier access to devices, and we're going to give you easier access to support, as in uh, contacts, spies, troops, you know, people who show up in groups to help you out or you know cover up your messes or things like that and so you give up two things but you get two things and that makes playing a technocrat different and i think that that's interesting uh storytellers are going to have to you know change the slider bars on there to make it something acceptable to you but I, I like that idea of making things different and last um i know there's a lot of discussion of of paradigm going through mage uh, years back when i had not been playing mage for a long time and a lot of the details had kind of faded to memory i thought hey I understand Mage, I understand Paradigm, this is not so hard once you work it out. And now coming back to Mage uh, doing Tomes of Magic and reading through these books and having a lot of great discussions with uh, Mage fans online. And we have a Discord, by the way, just, just to let you know there. Um, <laughs> I have realized that um, I, I was I was flat out arrogant. I thought I knew it all, and I did not. Uh, it is it is confusing. There are references in this book um, that they don't use the word paradigm, but they are dis they are referring to paradigm. There are places where it says, look, every convention has its own paradigm. There's another place where it hints that every methodology has its own paradigm. And there's another place, I think it's page 46, where they hint that, yeah, you know, there's really one basic paradigm for technocrats. And what I mean by that is, um, I think it's page 46, where they say, look, any technocrat can use any procedure in the technocracy. However, they have their own preferred styles. And it's like, Okay, paradigm is not a simple thing to unpack. It is not a simple thing to explain to anyone. I thought it was interesting that according to second edition rules, and this is a second edition book, technically speaking, the technocrats never drop their focuses. And so the idea here is, is the technocratic paradigm or paradigms inherently limited? Do the mystic mages have the inside dope that the technocrats missed out on? Or is this a notion of the technocracy, in a sense, uh, gave up in mystic insight in exchange for gaining influence and power on Earth, which is really where they want to be? I thought that was an interesting idea to, to end the general discussion on. But, Terry, I have been leaving you out. What are your thoughts on the book? Holy crap, there was a lot of information about like guns and weapons in this book, which... 
I don't know if that's specifically a technocratic thing. It's like guns don't solve every problem, just most of them. <laughs> and you're like, oh, okay. And again, we didn't get systems for it. So in a lot of cases, it's like, here's this remarkably vulgar device that is only slightly more effective than a handgun. I'm like, just go with the handgun. <laughs> I, I really like that the book did a good job of saying, hey, no, you can play a technocrat and this is how to play a technocrat. It is a transitory book between second edition and revised. Yeah. And, where um, in revised, just about everything got a system and just about everything got an answer. And it's one of those things where storytellers are like, I don't like being told what to do. Okay, then change it. I would much rather be given an answer and have the opportunity to change it than to just be like, nobody knows what control is. So like given the choice between like a crappy answer to what is control and uh, just a vague mystery. I kind of prefer the crappy answer, I guess, if I had to pick. That is something that if we were to record this episode again, this time tomorrow, I may say the exact opposite thing on. But to just say that control is the combined thoughts or feelings of everyone who is at least a master is kind of interesting because suddenly when people talk about control and they themselves are a member of it at some level, that's kind of an interesting beast. And I wasn't quite sure what to make of that. And and part of the answer is what, what previously we referred to as control as being this far off thing that controlled everything. This book kind of puts that on the inner circle that everyone knows what control is, but no one necessarily knows what the technocratic inner circle is. So, so that's kind of neat. It also, again, it didn't quite give give systems for everything, but it gave a lot of explanations, which, which I appreciated. There's a lot of stuff in here. It's just a little bit on the inconsistent side. Like a lot of the roads are interesting. Even if I don't agree with the spheres, a lot of the devices are pretty fascinating. Even if some of them are mundane, more or less, we actually get a system for how ties work, which is something that's been in every edition of world of darkness games, seemingly prior to here. And now it's finally like, Oh no, this is how you actually use police ties. This is how you actually use this kind of tie. And I'm like, ah, oh, son of a gun. We finally got it. We get a bunch of systems for things that we hadn't previously, where at the same time, there are also things that we really should have had systems for that we didn't. I do want to argue that they list as part of the dots in acting that Jennifer Jason Lee is a better actor than Meryl Streep. I personally disagree with that. So maybe that is something that is different in the world of darkness. Who knows? Um, That's just your paradigm. Yeah. <laughs> and... <laughs> And thanks for reminding me. Uh, one of the things, and uh, and friend of the show, Matt Webb of Jackalope Lark, bangs on about this, is there is a messiness with using the term paradigm. Because uh, someone's worldview for how they think the world should work and someone's magical paradigm aren't necessarily the same thing. And I think this book ran into a problem because it uses the word in like three different senses. In terms of, this is what our goal of ascension is. This is what we want the paradigm of the world to be. Versus, this is our magical Magical paradigm uh, versus this is how we accomplish our goals. And that conversation is something that is eventually worked out in revised, but we're not there yet. I guess I guess the big thing about it is it, this makes me uh, yearn to fully get to revised, love it or hate it. It does try and hash out a bunch of those things. But uh, overall, it's a good book. I don't know why they were dumping on hit marks so much. Where, <laughs> where they're like, yeah, sure, your character can, can be a hit mark, but uh, they're going to get paradox. And when they die, they completely dissolve and they're not going to live that long and they don't have a soul. How about that? And the fact they're that they're smart. Exactly. And the fact that they introduced the soulless flaw was kind of weird to me. I'm like, oh man. So if I am a sleeper, I can just get 
seven freebie points <laughs> for being soulless. There's not much of a downside to that. Hey, like, you're a really bad role player. No, no, I'm soulless. I'm a really good role player. You just don't know it. Yeah. <laughs> I, I still argue that any anything that, that turns you into a jerk at the table should be listed as a merit because I want it to cost you points. I don't want you to get a benefit from being like, no, my character, it's, I have the flaw. Total dick all the time who steals your Cheetos. <laughs> the the line on page uh, 132 where it just says deal with it and enjoy the extra points the flaw gives you you're like Ugh. like it, it's it, this book is very much written against power gamers and mm-hmm. uh, it, this was something that popped up across second edition which I get where it's like golden rule change it if you don't like it except for these very specific things that have to be this way or characters or players may accidentally have fun and we can't let that happen um, so <laughs> well, it is a book on a technology yeah <laughs> <laughs> yeah, that, that, you, you're right. That is that is strangely appropriate. I, I wish we had more information on extraordinary citizens. We just get this little sidebar that's like, oh, by the way, you might want to ru- use the wor- rules for World of Darkness Sorcerer. And I feel like every week I have another conversation with someone's like, where do I get rules for extraordinary citizen? And the answer is everywhere and nowhere. It's inside of you. And you're like, that, that just means there isn't a write-up. That's correct. Um, so <laughs> I guess the last consideration is I thought the art and graphic design were pretty good, but the usage of sidebars to explain what's really going on or things that you're going to need to solve yourself and the way the art was used and the way that the systems chapters and the other sides get their own templating. I liked that. I thought it made it relatively easy to read. I may be a little bit biased. This is a hardback and I tend to read the dead tree copies of hardbacks and I tend to read the PDF copies of paperbacks. So I, I just generally found the reading experience of this to be pleasurable. I thought it was, it was easy to read. It was well written. There wasn't a lot of flowery extra stuff things were were only stated usually twice and it was often in different chapters uh, a thing that uh, some of the writers in second edition would do is they would explain the same thing three times in a row which is just one style of doing it where other people would give multiple passes but they would be spread out across multiple chapters which I like because it kind of gives my subconscious a little bit of time to digest things so uh, on the whole yeah this is this is an easy recommend for me it's going to be a little bit until we get technocracy reloaded but a lot of the information in here is still going to be good. Technocracy Reloaded is is certainly an update of that, but if someone were like, hey, I have this and I got it for $4 at a used game store, am I going to tell them that that doesn't work? No, not at all. This is this is a great thing. Yeah, easy recommend for me too. Big book, a lot in there. So uh, a few adventure ideas here. Is there anything Ooh. new under the sun? No, there's nothing new under the sun. However, here's some adventure ideas. <laughs> uh, number one, after being sworn to secrecy and performing several successful missions for Project Invictus, the players are given a new supervisor whose codename is Razor. This new authority only communicates through mysterious messengers who speak to the players while covering their faces with masks. A global gathering of symposium leaders is occurring in the player's city, and they are given the task of taking out a high-ranking technocrat accused of dealings with corrupted syndicate members. Is this a setup? Do the players take advantage of the disorder during the gathering to investigate their suspicious supervisor, or do they risk their lives as assassins during a highly protected technocrat event? An excellent dance with paranoia for your loyal agents. Number two, a void craft has just returned from a deep space mission. Its entire crew was immediately reassigned as shuttle pilots for personnel transfers for orbital horizon contracts. Each horizon construct has authority over several symposiums on Earth. The player's supervisor pulls strings to have the players assigned as support crew on some of those flights. The players will have their hands full dealing with pilots who go rogue during shuttle flights. Can the players learn zero-g maneuvering and other space-related skills in time to shut down the deviants? What are the rogue void engineers really after? 
This story could involve fish-out-of-water moments, the wonder of seeing Earth from orbit, and a severe ethical dilemma. Void Engineers Enforcement Training and Conditioning Agency for years has been undoing New World Order conditioning of Void Engineers. This makes voiders helpless against nephondic influence during deep space journeys. Could it be that the New World Order's chains are the best protection from something worse? Number three. Deviants in the Council of Nine had infiltrated a national event called Summer of Love to strike at technocrats visiting the city to attend a symposium meeting. Rather than stop the deviants, the players are informed by their supervisor this is a perfect time to eliminate dangerous rogue agent John Courage. Courage has been coordinating with sympathizers in the technocracy to stop the tradition mage's plan, but in the process, he got sloppy. Fearsome assassin John Corrent is waiting to kill Courage when he moves against John Corrigan, leader of the Deviant Mages, at a speaking event for former Secretary of State John Kerry. Can the players avert disaster before the assassin strikes? And why can't the communications apps and backup personnel keep their Johns straight? This could be played as a lighthearted story where the players are constantly trying to locate the most slippery agent alive. It is now headcanon to me that John Kerry is actually secret agent John Courage, and I am entirely fine with that. The Onion did a whole series where they portrayed John Kerry as this like international man of mystery super spy, and I very much enjoyed that. And playing into that, I thought those were splendid story hooks. I think my favorite little text passage was the, uh, in terms of just like pure writing, was the uh, the f- the two point flaw. I see, which contains the line, the union prizes efficiency and reliability. Most technocrats still treasure a bit of humanity. If you've gotten any, it doesn't show. You could order the slow torture of a baby as casually as you could order a soda, then listen to the screams without flinching. And I'm like, okay, then. (laughs) And I'm like, yeah, I could see how that's a two point flaw. Um, That's not icy, that's iceberg. Yeah. (laughs) Yeah, that's a good way of putting us. You want to take us out, Adam? Hey, if you have anything uh, to say, please contact us at magethepodcast at gmail.com with your questions, comments, or feedback. Don't worry, folks. We can take it. Subscribe to Mage the Podcast on iTunes, Google Play, or TuneIn, or other services. There are a lot out there these days. If you like the show, others might like it, too. And if you leave a review of Mage the Podcast, it makes us more visible in other people's searches. We'd certainly appreciate it. You can follow us on Twitter. At Mage the Podcast. We're also on the web, magethepodcast.com, a great place to listen to past episodes and also get the complete show notes. Terry's been working pretty hard on those, and I certainly enjoy clicking on the links there. Uh, this episode is thanks to executive producers Ira Grace, Richard Bat Brewster, uh, John Magnuson, uh, Chris Zach, Christopher Phillips, Bryce Perry, Brandon Morrill, Andrew Katz, uh, Michael Parker, Anders, and Justin. If you would like to become an executive producer for Mage the Podcast, it would help us keep producing episodes. You could also become part of our own council to discuss upcoming projects. The link in the show notes will get you started. Well, thanks, everyone, for listening. And until next time, truth until paradox, baby. Go change reality.